1: Every evening we listen to them talk
0: on radio. Don't you listen to the radio? One of these nights. Tonight. All right, let's hear it. Where's
1: the radio? One of these Jay talking nights.
0: Jay talking with Bradley Jay.
1: You're going to call up Bradley Jay now. Hello. Hello. Mm-hmm. And tell
0: him why you're right. Hello? Who is calling? Can you hear me? Now, everybody's calling. The fever is high. This is now your chance to
1: discourse and more.
0: Thank you. Trying to have a conversation. Yeah, Jay's
1: got his problems, and he's got desires, but you got a few of your
0: own. WBZ News Radio 1030.
1: WBZ, you're Jay talking. We're live midnight to five and it's a big one. We have Anthony Samarco, the great Boston Fire of 1872 is our book tonight. Thanks for coming in.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I used to think of it as ancient history, but really it's being post-Civil War. It's not really like my grandfather's grandfather probably remembered it. My grandfather's father.
0: My great-grandfather
1: probably remembered
0: it. Right. I think a lot of our families had some sort of a story about it. I remember when I was a child, in some ways, listening to how Boston was destroyed, and I used to think to myself, my God, that must have been a horrendous fire. But when you really think about it, it was 40 acres of downtown Boston. It was bound by what is today Summer Street, Washington Street, Milk Street, and Post Office Square, and the waterfront. And it was something that destroyed the mercantile district the dry goods district the boot and shoe industry as well as the wharves and it was devastating and in these photographs in the book which i collected they were primarily stereo views that were done just after the fire it was something that showed devastation that one might have thought it was after world war ii in europe but this fire was so intense and so tremendous that following one year from the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, one began to think that, you know, the cities of the United States might be impacted by this, and there was a whole grouping of things that actually led to this calamity. Very recently, with these horrendous fires in California, which one cannot possibly imagine the devastation, but Boston was something that was... Sort of the urban uh, equivalent of that. It was. It was just tremendous. And though many, many people were impacted by this, the, the death toll was less than 20. And that was not only fortuitous and providential, but it was also something in some ways that many people began to realize the huge magnitude of this after three to four days when they saw the devastation.
1: All right, let's go way back. In the beginning of the book, you, you mentioned that Boston is really the Shamit Peninsula. Right. It's on the Shamit Peninsula. I've never heard it described that way. Well, no, Shammut was an Indian it tribe. It was.
0: You know, the, the Massachusetts Indians, um, not only was Boston something that was settled in 1630 by Puritans seeking religious freedom, but one had to realize the Native Americans were here for millennia. And in that instance, they called what we call Boston shawmat. And shawmat is basically the term that might be literally translated into the parting of the ways. So when you think of Boston itself, at that time, it was an 800-acre peninsula, like a balloon connected to the mainland at Roxbury, but what was called the Neck. Now, Boston in that 17th century was something in some ways that had what was called trimount, and the Puritans called it the Trimount because there were tri or three hills. There was Beacon Hill in the center, and then on the left was what basically became Mount Vernon, and on the right Cotton or Pemberton Hill. And in that way, Trimount would be translated phonetically into Tremont Street. 17th century Boston arose for what was something that was being settled by people seeking religious freedom. It was almost like a mini English village. Everybody was from England. But by the 18th and 19th century, it had evolved into a very um, profitable and very comfortable and wealthy town and would remain as such right through to 1822 when it became a city and it was embraced as a municipal government.
1: So initially, the money came from the sea, not from industry on land. Therefore, you didn't need a bunch of commerce. And so Boston, what we now think of as the business district, like Summer Street and and Kingston Street and High Street were all these big old, big mansions with lots of stables and things?
0: Well, true. Well, Boston's economy was primarily a mercantile economy throughout the 17th and 18th century. And as a mercantile economy, you had to realize they built a ship that could then trade, not just locally, but even as far as the West Indies, Caribbean, Cuba that could then bring, of course, you know, molasses to Boston to be made into rum. There was a triangle trade that was a major feature of the economy. But by the early part of the 19th century, the downtown district, as I mentioned, Summer Street and all of the side streets, Pearl Street, Devonshire Street, uh, Congress Street, were residential. And Charles Bullfinch, one of the major gentlemen architects of the turn of the 19th century, was somebody who did build these grand mansions. So when one thinks of Summer Street, today we think of the major department stores as well as specialty shops. Um, So leading from Dewey Square at South Station all the way to Washington Street at Downtown Crossing, this was once the bon ton of Boston from the 1790s right through to the 1830s, early 1840s. And Charles Bullfinch in this first um, chapter in the Great Boston Fire of 1872 was something that not only showed these mansions, but showed how it evolved from a residential neighborhood into a commercial one that would then be destroyed in the Great Boston Fire. And then it was almost like a phoenix arising from the ashes that in the late 1870s and 1880s, one would see it becoming an area predominated by department stores.
1: So it was mostly wood until what point? Until Bullfinch started building at the turn of the century?
0: Well, during the period of the 17th century, Boston's town center would actually be where the old state house is, at the head of what is today State Street, then known as King Street. If one looked at the building, on the right-hand side would be the north end, and on the left-hand side would be the south end, and that was the colonial south end of Boston. It was a very elegant area, and it was not wooded. It actually had many houses. By the period of 1700, you know, not only the Old South Church was located at Washington and Milk Street, but you would see Trinity Church, which is the site of what is today Filene's Department Store. There were many places, not just of worship, but residential development that took place. And don't forget, Washington Street that goes from the old state house would be the connector to the neck that went Washington Street through what is today the present day South End and would eventually connect to Roxbury. So that was the only land route into Boston from solid land. Otherwise, one would have actually had to have taken a boat or a ship and in that instance you know, docked in Boston. But Washington Street had a much greater importance um, for the first 200 years of the settlement of Boston than, in some instances, it does today. There are other connector routes and things of that sort. But during that period of time, that area of the colonial south end was something that was really quite elegant. And it was something, in some ways, that had some of the wealthiest people in Boston.
1: And uh, before the fire, Charles Bullfinch built a lot, and he built a lot. Up till when? eighteen Well, he left Boston. 40, maybe.
0: Well, he, don't forget in he Boston? left Boston in eighteen nineteen to go to Washington D.C. But between roughly the early part of the seventeen nineties right through to eighteen nineteen, he was probably the most prolific gentleman's architect in Boston. You know, he never trained to be an architect. He was educated at Harvard College. He took the Grand Tour of Europe. So when he returned to Boston in the seventeen eighty six period. It would have been the fact that he was from a merchant family. His father was Dr. Thomas Bullfinch, who had been educated at the University of Edinburgh. His grandfather was a Roddy Bullfinch, who was a very wealthy merchant that lived in the Boston's West End, roughly what is today the site of Boston City Hall Plaza. And that was where Bullfinch was raised. So he married Susan Appthorpe, um, whose family were loyalists. But in a lot of ways, he became a major builder and designer but not as an architect per se but in that period of time he built everything from ecclesiastical structures residential warehouses commercial space he really was the man who transformed boston from a town built of wood into a city built of red brick and in that period of the early part of the 19th century he would eventually even train what became a second generation of Boston architects. So Asher Benjamin, and Alexander Paris, people that were not only designing in red brick, but also in granite. So Boston was really transformed in that area, thanks to Bullfinch.
1: Did he become the person that everyone who was anyone wanted to have do their he
0: was He was incredible. Not only was his perspective, but his sense of symmetry. It was something that he reintroduced what was neoclassicism, something that he saw in Europe to america especially here in boston and neoclassicism translated into american federal architecture it's ironic because i just bought a painting at skinner and it was of the thomas dawes house that he purportedly designed in 1795 on congress street it's in the book so when i saw this in the catalog and i connected the photograph to the painting that i was bidding on it was probably midnight I was a little bit astonished and I won the bid of course I'll have to eat bologna sandwiches for a month was it
1: fun bidding I mean you do that quite a bit do you like the those auctions
0: I do I actually wait with bated breath until the morning and I get up and I was in my office and I said to somebody it's like oh I'm bidding on this painting and I showed him the painting and of course it was almost as if it just crossed his eyes he had no interest in it (laughs) When I explained that this was Thomas Dawes's house and it was really such an important painting, and it not only chronicled one of Bullfinch's designs, but it was something that was in this district that would eventually be, you know, part of the burnt district. The building survived, but it would be demolished in the late 1860s to actually become part of a commercial development. But you know, Bullfinch was somebody as an architect who really did introduce some very important design changes and the evolution of architecture in the 19th century is really important. But a lot of his architecture, including the Tontine Crescent, which was the first connected row houses in all of New England, which was on Franklin Place, today Franklin Street, which has a very gentle arc. The very center had a pavilion, and under that pavilion had a small archway that led through to Summer Street, and that perpetuates the name of arch street. So, you know, Bullfinch really did something that was not just topographical changes. He cut down Beacon Hill. It was not just infilling of land, but it was also creating the elegant federal city. And in some ways by 1822, Boston was really quite an elegant place. Why did
1: they cut the top off Beacon Hill?
0: Well, it wasn't just the fact that it actually was the height of the Massachusetts State House Dome. Everyone thinks that the... With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Statehouse is built on Beacon Hill. Well, it was built on the slope of Beacon Hill, but Beacon Hill rose behind the original statehouse. One could never ascend it without, you know, basically having rock climbing skills. So they cut it down not only to allow development, but also to fill in what was basically the flat of Beacon Hill. Charles Street was the end of solid land. And between Charles Street and what is today Starrow Drive was water, was the Charles River. So what Bullfinch and many other the developers did was to cut down Beacon Hill, cart it down the hill, dump it into the Charles River, and they created the new flat of Beacon Hill. In that instance... In the early part of the 19th century, the Mount Vernon proprietors allowed Beacon Hill to be developed with new streets, Mount Vernon Street, Chestnut Street. Of course, Beacon Street was extant, but it also had places like Lewisburg Square and West Cedar Street. And this developed into what became an urban created plan neighborhood. Thanks to Charles Bullfinch.
1: One thing that's kind of fun to do, at least for me, is while... Anthony's talking about the streets. I have Google Maps pulled up so I can really, when you say the corner of High Street and something else, it's it's fun for me to actually know exactly where it is and what's there now. Not sure why that fascinates me so much.
0: Well, I think, you know, that's something in a lot of ways. When I did this book, and it was for the, you know, anniversary of the Great Boston Fire, granted it was not during our lifetime, 1872 seems like an eon ago, but, you know, when when I think about it, it was during my grandfather's childhood, and I, most of our family were older when they married, so it was something in a lot of ways that I heard these stories, and I was always intrigued by it, but when I began to do research for it and acquire photographs, mind you, I'm on eBay every day of my life, I buy whatever I can find that actually chronicles the history of Boston, and... This book tried to show what it was like before the fire, and then, of course, during the fire in etchings because there was no night photography. But then what happened after the fire, which were these wonderful stereo views that showed the burned district. But then what basically I said, arising from the uh, Phoenix, arising from the ashes, what happened afterwards, how Boston was redeveloped thanks to George Clough, who was the city architect for the city of Boston, and the department stores and the new district. Bullfinch created what was the urban streetscape of the early 19th century, but I credit George Clough, who was the city architect of Boston in the period from 1873 when he was appointed for the next decade, as somebody who reinterpreted that urban streetscape and made it into something that we can relate to today.
1: Do a lot of the people you mentioned, like Clough, do, do they have? Does he have descendants still? Do you know them?
0: I don't know the descendants of the Cloughs, and I, I don't, off the top of my head, know if he had descendants. But he was somebody who, in many instances, we are the beneficiaries, so to speak, of you know his lifetime career as an architect. He was somebody who was so important, and many times. When a city architect was appointed, you have to realize that Clough was somebody who designed every post office, every school, every municipal building, who basically did every fire station in the city of Boston. So in that period, there are many buildings that still survive in Boston, and it sounds peculiar, but when I do drive past them, I always nod my head to George Clough because they are major features to this day over a century later as part of you know that evolution of a neighborhood in Boston.
1: Do they have plaques on them, most of the cleft buildings?
0: Oh, that's one of the things. The Bostonian Society had tried to actually begin these things, and it was a legal wrangling of putting these little green enamel plaques on buildings. And I always thought it was such an important feature because even though it didn't say a whole lot, It was similar to London that would actually have blue oval plaques that were placed on buildings and said who lived there, why it was important. I have to admit, I mean, I've taught both at the Urban College of Boston for two decades, and now I'm teaching at Boston University at the Metropolitan College. I have students that are vaguely interested in history, and though they're actually really trying to get a humanities degree, um, I want to believe that they're taking the course because they're fascinated in history. But at the end of the course, I think they actually have learned a lot. And I think the public needs to realize that these little tidbits of history they matter. They do matter. There was always something that hung in my study, which was a Courier and Ives color print of the Great Boston Fire. And it's actually something that was called Boston in Flames. It showed not just the city, but actually the city burning. And it was something that I found in an ephemera show, and I thought it was really quite a beautiful thing, chronicled the city and everything of that sort. But it was something that spurred on what would eventually be the collection of this huge amount of research material. So, that
1: Courier and Ives what, uh, was the colonel that got the book started?
0: It is. It was on page 49. Of course, this is a book that's in black and white, but one of the concepts was that it was something that was really a beautiful picture. And I, anything that I find that is something that is a good representation of how the city's evolved, whether it's through you know, topographical changes, a redevelopment, or architectural, um, or in this instance, a disaster— it was something that you know i would collect and hopefully use in the future and one of the things is i have to tell everyone that everything that was used in the book and all of my research material is always donated to the archives and special collections at the healy library at the university of massachusetts in boston it's now available you know 5 days a week it's been archived and can be used for research or reinterpretation by people But this was something that when I was doing it, I was trying to show the evolution of that part of the city. So it did have chapters that were both the Bullfinch residential development and then, of course, the commercial overlay from the 1850 to 1872 period when many of these places were no longer residential. So that by the time of the fire, the area of Summer Street and Pearl Street, High Street, were probably 90% commercial. There were a few residential houses left. But by 1872, this was something that was completely redeveloped. And one of the things is, the building where it started was called Tibbetts, Baldwin, and Davis. And this building, which was at the corner of Summer and Kingston Street, was designed and built in the very fashionable, you know, French mansard-roofed commercial block it was completed in 1870, and the funny thing was, it was owned by Lehmann Kluse. Kluse was a German immigrant, and this was a hoop skirt manufactory. <laughs> if you can imagine women wearing hoop skirts, which meant that there was a six-wide skirt, it was something that was the height of fashion. And supposedly, on November 9th of 1872, There was a spark that ignited a bale of cotton in the basement, and this was in a commercial district, so after 6 p.m., there were very few people in the area. And, of course, the fire went up the elevator shaft, which was a natural draw. The roof, which was a mansard roof, the height of fashion and architecture at the time, was built with a wood trussing. And in that instance, the building itself was engulfed in flames. When people rang the fire alarm you had to realize that these were fire engines that were pulled by horses. Now, in the 1872 period, that was a major feature, and these were primarily Hahnemann fire engines or steam engines that were made in Roxbury. But the problem was, for the last three weeks, every horse in Boston seemed to have an epizoic. The horses were laid low with the flu, so there were no horses to pull not only carriages, and wagons, let alone fire engines. So when the volunteer firefighters actually were called out, and John Damrell was the chief of the Boston Fire Department, you had to realize when they got to the firehouse, there were no horses to pull these two-ton engines. So the men would actually have to pull them by hand. So in the time when they got to the Boston Fire, not only was the building Lehman Cluse's. Hoop skirt factory engulfed in flames, but it actually had over an hour's head start. So it seemed like the entire block of Summer and Kingston Street was engulfed in flames. When they arrived at the fire, not only were the firefighters winded, but then they actually had to open the fire plugs. Now, the fire plugs are our modern day equivalent of a hydrant. It provided water, and in that instance, the fire plugs were sufficient with enough water that might have reached a three story building designed by Charles Bulfinch. But now you had a five story commercial block with a mansard roof. There wasn't enough water pressure. The men were winded. And of course, the fire was spreading. And by the period of midnight, it seemed like the entire area of not only Summer Street, but Winthrop Square. And of course, Franklin Street, leading towards the waterfront, was engulfed in flames. And during that period of time, it got such a head start with all of these calamities that were involved that one began to realize that the Great Boston Fire itself was spreading to every aspect of downtown Boston and would eventually destroy 40 acres.
1: So, the corner of that corner of Summer and Kingston this hoop skirt factory, what were on the other, which corner was it and what were the, what was on the other corners? Do you, well, I think one, you probably know because well, there's photos in here. Oh,
0: it's wonderful. If one is looking towards the waterfront, our back is to the former Gilchrist department store so you're or winter standing, street. Like
1: in the, say if you're standing in the middle of Summer, or... Correct. You're looking towards the waterfront. Correct.
0: On the right-hand side, that's Summer in Kingston. Yeah. So in that area, one saw Hovey's Department Store on the right-hand side, which is now the site of uh, Macy's Department Store. I hate to call it that. It's Jordan Marsh to me. But you would also see on the left-hand side, Trinity Church. And Trinity Church was one of the oldest Episcopal places of worship in Boston, But that was where Phillips Brooks was not only stationed, but he was also a major feature. They had already purchased land to move to the Back Bay, but they were still worshipping there. But if one looked down Summer Street, it was an amalgamation of new buildings that had been constructed. And in that instance, you saw some very important buildings, none of which today would come down to us in name. But the whole concept was it was completely built up as a commercial area. All of the residential aspect of that was almost swept away in the 1860s. So by the time of that you began to realize that John Damrell was somebody who looked at this as not just a fire but it was something that was actually sweeping one block after another and by the early morning hours of November 10th it seemed as though almost the entire downtown district was engulfed in flames. Now There was a telegraph, of course, and this was sent out to surrounding cities and towns to actually send aid. And firefighters would actually come from the city of Charlestown, the town of Dorchester, the city of Roxbury. But, you know, you had to realize there was the whole aspect of getting into this. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? (gasps) Ooh, a book club! (sighs) Computer solitaire,
1: huh? Ah, oh, sorry,
0: we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. City. But then there was the lack of water power, and it seemed as though the fire got a head start. Damrell, though he was a professional firefighter, and of course they call it Damrell's fire, but it was also the fact that he tried to bank the fire. And by the next morning, by banking a fire, one actually destroys buildings to create a block so that the fire cannot pass over it. And what he did was to bank the fire in such a way by exploding buildings. He thought he could stem the tide, but what really happened was he hadn't turned off the gas lines in Boston. So when he did the explosion, the gas caused a further spreading of the fire. So that would be the folly there. Exactly. And the folly was something that not only destroyed additional property, but spread the fire even more. By the time it reached Post Office Square, at that point, Alfred Mullet's new post office and sub-treasury was being built. It was being built of Vermont granite. It was thought impervious to fire, but edges of it did stop the fire, but the granite was still affected. Here was a building built of granite. Many of these buildings didn't, you know, basically burn. They imploded. So granite was something that, with the huge influx of heat from the fire, would see these buildings simply fall into one another, and they simply imploded. So Boston was not only burning, but it was also the fact that excursion boats <laughs> would actually have people for a dollar actually going from Crows Point in Hingham to the Boston waterfront and they would actually be off the coast to watch Boston burning. You have a picture of that? I do. I, I show these pictures of these not only rowboats and small boats, but even the excursion boats actually having been filled with people. By the next morning, it was something that you you saw the fire having continued, but you also saw the smoldering ruins. And between November 9th and November 10th, to see 40 acres of downtown Boston destroyed, it was something that was not just devastating, but it was almost incomprehensible because this was a major part of Boston's economy. But can you give us
1: an idea of the perimeter of the fire before you do that, though? I did some math. I read that it was in your book. 40 acres yes and i tried to figure out what that meant 40 acres so i tried to we all know what a football field feels like so a football field is 1.3 acres and i did i took 40 and divided by 1.3 and it comes out to about 30 i think does that sound right it does okay
0: one of the concepts is you know 40 acres it sounds like a tremendous amount of land but you had to realize i do have a map and it's on page 58 It shows the whole concept of the fire spreading from Summer Street along Washington Street and then skirting down Milk Street past the old South Meeting House, post office square, and then all the way to the waterfront. So one would think the wharves projecting into the harbor themselves would not have burned, just like the other part of the city. But these wharves themselves also had coal hods. Now, ships and barges would come into Boston. Boston used coal not only to heat through furnaces, but also fireplaces. So these wharves themselves were lined with coal, and we know what happens to coal when it burns. It not only smolders, but it becomes intense in heat. The wharves were wood, and even though they projected out over the water, it was something that you saw just not the city burning, but even the wharves projecting into the harbor itself. So one of the things is, though, they did save the Old South Meeting House, and there was a whole thing about the fire. It was something that was spreading quickly, but there were many different buildings they looked at. Trinity was completely devastated in less than an hour. But the Old South Meeting House, which was built of red brick, had a wooden roof and, of course, a wooden spire, wasn't just a colonial landmark, but this was the place where, you know, not only Samuel Sewell, my ancestor, had actually preached, but it was also something in the period of the Revolution from which the Indians had left to actually have the Boston Tea Party. Yeah. So this was, was like
1: Liberty was born right yeah, there. Yeah,
0: exactly. And it was a place not just of worship, but it was this political overtone that they wanted to save. And there was a fire engine called the Kearsage, number three from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Now, it didn't come over the road. This was a fire engine that was brought on a railroad flatbed from Portsmouth, New Hampshire to Boston. Wow. So it arrived at North Station, and of course there they had even horses from Portsmouth, and they would actually bring it to the Old South Meeting House, and it played water on the building and the the steeple for the entire night and they saved it but they also and i have a print that actually shows it in the book of people actually putting wet blankets on the wooden shingles of the roof while they actually played the water that's a big deal it was it too could have been engulfed in flames in a matter of moments it was wood it was old it was something that probably would have been tinder
1: oh yeah Maybe we should send Portsmouth a Christmas tree every year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They called it the Burnt District. But when one went into that area and the photographs show people just standing amidst the ruins, photographers would arrive just after the fire to chronicle the devastation. And they would actually do these stereo views, which are these little horizontal things that one would use a stereo viewer to look at, But today, as a collectible, they're sometimes the most important part because they do chronicle how the fire itself destroyed the downtown district. But they would show people just dazed, standing amongst the ruins of maybe once their place of employment or even their business. And it was something that wasn't just completely destroyed, but it was also something they were hoping that something could be saved.
1: Maybe they were tired because they have been up for, what, two, three days?
0: I would think so. But the other thing was, you know, a lot of these buildings, the interiors were wood plaster. The destruction would cause the floors to fall. Now, one of the major things that were in all of these businesses were safes. Now, the safe would actually fall to the basement. Bang, 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 exactly. bang. Exactly. Yeah, wow. And one would hope that at least the accounts receivable could be saved, who cared about the accounts payable. But the idea was that some of these safes were fireproof and some did actually, you know, survive the fire, but probably 70% didn't. How about looters? Well, that was the other thing. Within a short period of time, uh, the governor of the Commonwealth and the mayor of Boston did call out people to actually preserve what they called the Burnt District. And in that instance, in this book I show in these wonderful photographs... The Claflin Guards is actually standing guard. And they're not just standing guard over the burnt ruins, but they're standing guard off the the major buildings that actually might have had these safes that would actually preclude looting. Now, in that instance, I also have these things that actually show not just the Claflin Guard, but also the fact that the cadets were called out from uh, not only the um, Chelsea Armory, but also we saw that the uh, Charlestown naval base, there would actually be men that would actually be in the area. And during that period of time, they were quartered in the Old South Meeting House. And there, not only did people have passes, initially handwritten, but later printed, that would allow people entry into the burnt district, but these men themselves would actually be there working on shifts of 10 hours a day. And sleeping in the pews at the Old South Meeting House and eating their meals and having hot drinks and coffee there as well. One could not quite imagine the intensity of this. And it was something that, you know, impacted the entire city, let alone the economy of New England.
1: Were the Claflin Guards ex Civil War soldiers? Because they sure look like
0: it. Some were, probably, but I think a lot of them were also, you know, trained professionals. What, was,
1: uh, what were the Claflin Guards? Well, well Claflin was the, be... governor, oh, okay. was the governor. Oh, okay. And
0: Claflin Guards were basically people that were, you know, trained to do this type of work. And What would the, be the equivalent today? The state? The ancient and honorable artillery company. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so not a National Guard, but a, the, the, the state... Equivalent of a national the guard? The national
0: guard, I would think, yeah. You know, you saw this utter, utter devastation. And it wasn't just the fact that the buildings had imploded and burnt, but it was also the fact the streets were strewn with all of this. Firefighters were exhausted. There was a lack of not only water and water pressure. The fire got such a head start because of the epizootic in Boston. The photographs of the devastation itself... I always somewhat equivalent to Germany during World War II. It's like Dresden, Dresden-looking. Yeah, very looking. much so. Yeah. I mean, there were pictures of um, a woman from Boston throwing down a wreath. And, of course, death is above with her, you know, broom that is actually burning up above. And it says, Boston, Massachusetts, the homestead of liberty. But it shows the utter devastation of the city and also on page 96, which is one that's called "Homeless Tonight" or "Boston and Ashes," which was sheet music that was actually written by C. A. White, and it was published by White Smith and Perry. And you could actually replay Boston's Fire on your piano at home. So there were things that actually were, you know, kind of like tacky souvenirs. But today, that lithograph of two children escaping with Trinity Church burning in the distance was something today that has become a, a lithograph that is quite collectible. This was from the collection of the Boston Athenaeum. But the concept was that these were things that people actually did collect. And everybody seemed affected, whether or not they lost something or were part of a building that burnt. It was part of a collective grief over the next few months. Now, one of the things that the city of Boston had to do was to clear the streets and of course create this aspect that could be redeveloped by George Clough, the city architect. Well, many of these buildings were built of granite and granite was something that was necessary to be carted away because it had imploded. So it was damaged, it couldn't be reused in a new building. So many times people don't realize it was reused Not only in the Four Point Channel area, but if you know in South Boston, the road that goes out to Castle Island, on both sides it's lined with granite. And these were breakers to the water itself. And that was the granite from the Great Boston Fire of 1872. Not only did they reuse it, but they did it in a very beautiful way. And I look at that granite when I take my walks out at Castle Island, and I say, wow, this is something... You know, to reuse, it's great, it's green, but it was also something that was unusable granite. So much of it was used in foundations for the new buildings that were to be constructed along Summer Street in the uh, Four Point Channel area, but we also saw it being used for foundations as well as the embankment walls. So in that instance, when the streets were cleared, and of course they began to look at this, what was the city going to build? I mean, was it going to be the dry goods area? Was it still going to be the leather and boot industry?
1: Yeah, no one would, No one knew what was going to well, the city become of that right, 40 blocks.
0: Right, but eventually the city looked at that as one of the major features of the heart of the city, and that's where it became the department stores. It became the new shopping district for the entire, even New England area and anchors like Jordan Marsh, which had survived the fire because they were on Washington Street at Avon Street, and we would eventually see Abraham Schuman building his building at the corner of Summer in Washington that became part of Jordan Marsh. But then we would also see eventually, in 1912, Filene's, and then Gilchrist across the street. Major department stores would actually open, Raymond's, Kennedy's, R.H. Stearns R.H. White, C. Crawford Hallage, the area itself would have major department stores which had once been small dry goods stores, but now you had this preponderance of a commercial district there was no sense of residential They didn't change the street
1: patterns much, right?
0: Well, they straightened the street patterns and one of the things is, you know, some of these streets were not terribly ill crooked like the North End. But in this instance, they did widen them. They also put in plumbing, underground water contuits, but also hydrants, no longer fire plugs, which were wooden um, projections that had a little plug.
1: It's probably the case that that whole area really needed a refit when it comes to plumbing, sanitary plumbing and,
0: and all that. And it did well, they provide did. an
1: opportunity to do something that would have to be done later and it would be a lot harder to do well, later.
0: They did and they also took the aspect of Lloyds of London um with the potential canceling of the insurance for Boston you know on December 31st yeah. wow. to account. And I think the city in the 1873 to 1880 period saw tremendous changes and a good example is on Arch Street. I mean, the Art Street Shrine is a great building. It's from the late 1950s, early 1960s. But directly across the street, you can still see buildings that will have 1873 on the cornices or the, or the uh, corner block. But in a lot of ways, that area itself was completely rebuilt and became really the viable, the economic viable aspect of the city and New England. You know, State Street when I was young, was always the banking center, the insurance center, and eventually it would change. We'd see many of these places going throughout the Back Bay. But in that period of the late 19th century and early 20th century, you know, it was the banking center, the economic heart of the city, and it was something that was all developed after the fire.
1: I noticed in the map that you generously provided on page 58, the the perimeter... And it's a strangely straight line along Washington Street. What what was it about Washington Street where they were able to keep the fire from jumping across?
0: Well, that's the funny thing. The winds were the whole um, reason the fire did not cross Washington Street. So if one thinks of where today the Filene's building is located at Summer and Washington Street, directly opposite are some buildings, surprisingly, like E.B. Horn which is an 1840s traviated granite block. It's still there. It's still there. And the funny thing was these buildings themselves were not destroyed, and it was all thanks to the wind. The winds wept and drove it towards Winthrop Square and the waterfront. So these buildings themselves continually burnt, but it never crossed Washington Street. Hmm. Now, during the period of the late 1872, after the fire— there were things that I have in um, the Boston directories and various advertisements. And there were shops that would sell clothing. And they were on the opposite side of Washington Street. And I'll never forget when I was doing this research, it would actually have advertisements and they say, come and have your suit tailored. We have the best views of the burnt district from our windows. Really? So they did survive. But they also marketed their businesses as not just having survived, but also having great views of the fire district.
1: Photography was rather young at the time, like 20 years old, right? Uh, so that was something that photographers would jump to take photos of, really really like a first-time opportunity.
0: Well, some of the major photographs. Except for Chicago. Right. Well, some of the major photographs were taken by Whipple and Black, who were two very well-known photographers on Tremont Row. And they actually would not only do aerial shots, but they also did street shots and the daguerreotypes. A lo- wonderful collection of these are in the uh, print room of the Boston Athenaeum, and at which we gave a fund to actually acquire photographs of Boston. Their photographs were so poignant, and there was a wonderful book that was done by Sally Pierce on it. So people might want to look at that. The rebuilding. More on the rebuilding. Was there a plan,
1: an overall guiding plan? Do they have rules like you must use brick and you must have certain fire safety
0: stuff? There was. The city of Boston took a concerted effort to rebuild the burnt district in a way that was something that would preclude the fact that there would never be another devastating fire of this sort. And they hired... George Clough. Now, Clough was a major architect in Boston. In the 1850s and 1860s, he had made his claim to fame. So, by 1873, when he was appointed, he was the first city architect for the city of Boston. And there would be a city architect right through to 1916. The last one was Edmund March Wheelwright. But the concept was that here was Clough. He was actually somebody who had to come up with parameters. I mean, we had 40 acres to rebuild. Streets had to be relayed. You also had to actually have all of the utilities to represent one of the major features of a major city. So gas was something that was used to illuminate the dark. So gas lines had to be relayed. Water lines had to be relayed. So there was a huge amount of infrastructure that had to take place even before they could build. But when they did begin to build, it was decreed that nothing could be built unless it was built of stone. So it was either granite, limestone, brownstone. There were very few brick buildings because brick is something again that you know seemed not quite as durable as the stone right. itself. But also the buildings themselves, which would have party walls, had to be fireproof. So there was a fireproofing between every single building. It also meant that the buildings themselves could not have wood, which was support systems, so it had to be of metal. The roofings, the roofs themselves, which were still manside roofs, were no longer built with wooden trussing. And, of course, some were still covered in slate, but the whole idea was, in this instance, everything that was thought to be something that would be a conduit for fire was removed And by the period of 1875, quite a bit had already been not only cleared but rebuilt. I say by 1878, most of the downtown district, can you imagine, was completely rebuilt. And we would see Summer Street as one of the grandest streets in all of Boston with banks, insurance companies, as well as dry goods stores that became department stores, so, this was the new Boston. It was the phoenix arising from the ashes. And, you know, people began to realize in some ways that going to town was now becoming the norm. So, if one took a horse drawn streetcar, or after 1889, an electric streetcar, you got to downtown Boston, and the shopping was something that was the best imaginable. Granted, The local districts, say one was in Hyde Park or in Roxbury, there were still shopping areas. But to go to downtown Boston, you could get anything under the sun. And that was all thanks to George Clough and the city of Boston that created parameters for the builders to actually create the new city.
1: So electricity became a thing in about 1888?
0: After 1888, yes, and I think by the turn of the century. But don't forget, I mean, electricity was introduced by major buildings. So we saw the Baker Chocolate Company as one of the first having electricity. Jordan Marsh was thought to be the first department store that actually had electrical lights. It was incredible. Can you imagine a building in Boston prior to that being lit with gas lighting? Wow. Must have been charming, but very dark, especially on a dark day. Inside. Inside, Inside. yes. So electricity revolutionized how people shopped and, of course, allowed the dark to be illuminated. By the turn of the 1890s, it revolutionized everything. It wasn't just the lighting of the dark and the buildings. It was also the fact that streetcars no longer were pulled by horses. Now they were electrified. So... It was a major change, and downtown Boston saw the changes tremendously. So in the book, I have an ending chapter that goes in the aftermath and the building of these new palaces for shopping, and it goes the gamut, and the overlay was just incredible. I mean, during that period of time, right up through the period of the 1930s and 40s, The downtown district, prior to the advent of the suburban shopping malls, was a destination. So in this book, I not only show wonderful insurance companies and banking institutions, but also the streetscapes that show all the new businesses that were actually being established. So in some ways, this book is truly a a compilation of the period of the 19th century from the advent of Bullfinch in 1800 with the creation of this elegant Bon Ton residential district to the turn of the 20th century when it became the most wonderful aspect of uh, commercial development.
1: So on one side of Washington Street, you have no buildings that are older than 1873. And on the very other side of the street, you have complete, probably most of them, Pre-1873.
0: Some, yes. Um, great example is the former Globe Corner bookstore at the corner of what is today Washington and School Street. I believe today it's a yeah. Chip- Chipotle restaurant. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> that is one of the oldest buildings, 1712. Wow. Was an apothecary shop. But then you also have E.B. Horns, which is an 1840 commercial block, and it's a great example of granite traviated architecture. You know, so you have a 1712 building, an 1840s building, and in between you have these other buildings that date from the 1850s, 1860s, and 70s. But you're right. I mean, one side is completely 1873 and after, and some on the other side are quite old.
1: Seems kind of like a crime to have a Chipotle in a 1712 building to me. If you have a 1712 building, shouldn't the interior be... Also, 1712. If they want to have a Chipotle that's got 1712 interior, too, I'm fine with that.
0: Boy, I I totally agree.
1: We're looking forward. You're coming back and you're going to talk about the Christmas tradition books next month. Next time. month, yes. Yay. Uh, WBZ News Radio 1030. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
0: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino.